To all who come to this happy podcast, welcome. Hi, I'm Scott Jacobs, and this is season two of The Mouse and Me. On the show, I'll chat with my pals who come from all walks of Disney life, including Imagineers, dancers, technicians, directors, musicians, and stuntmen, and Broadway friends who have worked on stage and behind the scenes. We'll talk attractions, shows, food, characters, tips and tricks for planning your trip and navigating the parks, and more. Now, put on your Mickey ears or your princess crown and enjoy season two of The Mouse and Me. Hello and welcome to the show, everyone. My name is Scott Jacobs, and I'm the creator and host of The Mouse and Me, and I'm so glad that you're here. If you haven't already, please take a second to subscribe to the show, rate it, and leave a review. Also, if you'd like to support the show, please go to patreon.com slash themouseandme. I'd greatly appreciate it. Today's guest works on the stage, in front of the camera in both television and film, and behind the scenes as a showrunner, writer, and director. My guest co-founded the film production company, 12th Angel Productions, to make films that examine the human condition in thought-provoking and inspiring ways. The first project he wrote and directed through his company was the short film, Fading Scars, set against 9-11. The second project was Portrait of a Woman at Dawn, a Me Too-inspired story set in 1920s Paris. The latter screened at over 50 international festivals and took top prizes in all categories, including Best Short Film and Best Director. Most recently, through 12th Angel Productions, he made his feature film directorial debut with Billy Flanagan, The Happiest Man on Earth, which came out this past October. And if you haven't seen it, you need to see it. It's moving. It's inspiring. It's just perfection. My guest is also recognized as an actor, having recurred on shows including CBS's Pure Genius, ABC's Scandal, and HBO's Barry. Fan-favorite appearances include roles on True Blood, Twin Peaks, Grey's Anatomy, and Steven Spielberg's anthology series Amazing Stories for Apple TV+. His Disney credits include working at Walt Disney World as an associate show director and performer, and he had a recurring role in Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I am so happy to introduce you to my friend, Cullen Douglas. Hey, Cullen, how are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for inviting me to chat, Scott. I'm really looking forward to this. Well, thank you. I have three quick things for you. The first, happy belated birthday. Thank you so much. Thank You're you. You're welcome. Uh, the second, welcome home. How was Hawaii? You, you you just got back from Hawaii. I did. I was very, very lucky. Uh, some folks invited me to come act, and uh, it just happened to be in Hawaii. So I was there for a week. And when I wasn't on camera, I was eating pokey and, and trying <laughs> to get some sun and enjoying the weather and uh, it's it's rainy and overcast and cold here in Los Angeles today, so I'm I'm definitely missing Hawaii. But uh, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. And lastly, congratulations on Billy Flanagan, the happiest man on earth. It's it's really such a great movie, and it's just so well done. And and I'm I'm so happy for you and for the whole team. Well, thank you so so much. Um, you know, we we are, are wonderfully. Uh, taken by the fact that that audiences have embraced it. Uh, we felt like we had something special when we were making it, and yet you don't really know. You know, you create something sort of in a vacuum, 
and you hope that audiences will will get it the same way that that the team got it. And um, we're so pleased that that audiences are embracing it and are finding us on the various streaming platforms. And then, you know, shameless plug, we uh, we do release on DVD on November fifteenth. So. Um, the timing of you and I talking together. Um, it's just wonderful. Yeah. We're, we're definitely enjoying, um, everybody's positive feedback about the film. What inspired you to make the film? I I think I was inspired first by the fact that, um, I needed to find a creative outlet, um, during lockdown in the sense that, you know, the film and television industry had shut down completely. And so my livelihood had been taken away. Um, and as I've mentioned before, you know, I started to see on Facebook a lot of friends talking about getting flanagrammed. And, you know, I, I kind of asked a couple of questions, you know, private DMs, like, what's a flanagram? And, you know, hmm. something that is good. Um, and then people were like, no, no, it's Billy Flanagan. Um, you know, he's traveling around to everybody who is sheltering in place and locked down, and he's delivering these personalized singing and dancing telegrams. And uh, I just thought that that was just such a, a wonderful thing. And, you know, I, having been a Disney cast member about 25 years ago, I knew the name back then of Billy Flanagan. Billy and I had never worked together before, but um, he was legend, legend 20 some odd years ago. And so, um, you know, as the story goes, I reached out to Andrea Canny, a mutual friend of Billy and I's, and asked if he had ever been interviewed or, you know, if a documentary had ever been done about him. And when she reported back, no. Um, and obviously, you know, you've had a chance to speak to both Billy and uh, Andrea. You know, Billy was kind of at first like, what is this all about and why would anybody want to interview me? But there was such a positive message um, of hope. And I felt that that message about Billy and his flanograms was going to be something that, you know, people could really enjoy. And so my producing partner and I, Randy Goodwin, um, under the umbrella of 12th Angel Productions, sort of set about doing just sort of a 15 minute little feel good, um, you know, little documentary, little fluff piece kind of a thing that we could share on the Internet and and kind of hopefully brighten people's day a little bit like Billy was doing. But then after speaking with Billy um, and learning his story and learning the journey, not only as a Disney performer, but just as a human, as a father, as a husband, um, I thought, you know, there was a bigger story to be told. And so once we were able to secure Billy's, you know, story rights and, and, and get the family all on board. You know, we were kind of off to the races in telling it. So it really, I was inspired because I was looking for something creatively to be able to kind of stay busy so that my mind could continue to create as an artist. And it just so happened that I was at the right place at the right time and saw, you know, these Facebook messages about Billy and his flanograms. And, you know, two years later, here we are, you know, talking about a film that's now out there. So it's it's kind of exciting. Now you mentioned this happened over COVID, and you know that was a, a very challenging time for everyone. And you also mentioned that your industry shut down. Was that the most challenging aspect of directing the film? 
Honestly, the most challenging aspect was that I never physically shared space with anybody involved in the film. Literally, the only, I, I take that back, the only time that I did share space was when my lead editor and I, Jeremy Gillespie, we came together and locked picture, um, which within industry terms, it's when we made the final edit of the film so that we could send it out to the composer, we could send it out to the graphic artists and the animators and things like that. And that from that point forward, there would be no more changes to the film. But prior to that, you know, Jeremy and I did all of our editing online, uh, either a few Zoom meetings or, you know, just sharing our screens at various points, or I would edit and send rough cuts to Jeremy, he would do it. And then our assistant editors would feed things in. And then the same goes with my composer. Um, you know, my composer, Rob Pardoff, he lives in Kentucky, I believe. You know, my graphics animator lives in Pennsylvania. You know, we had Billy in Florida. So, and I'm in Los Angeles. So literally making the film was a very singular experience in the sense that every day I was waking up and going into my home office and working on the film, but I did not ever have that immediacy of the collaboration, you know, so that was, that was the biggest challenge was, and then I guess figuring out the ways in which, again, this film could not have been made 10 years ago or, or even prior, I guess, to Skype back when we used to use Skype, you know, right, as right. our go-to kind of a thing, um, because that was the way in which we were able to interview over 80 individuals for the film. We would not have been able to get a film crew out to everyone that we were able to interview. So we had the ability and were able to tap into the technology that exists these days to be able to tell our story. But so that was both a blessing as well as a bit of a curse because it was really hard. And, you know, as I said, you know, we created it. We were fortunate that once we did lock picture, the the uh, production company we hired um a, another firm to do a blind survey of the film and it reached out to about a hundred individuals who had no connection to billy flanagan no connection to me no connection to disney necessarily and we shared the rough cut of the film and that gave us invaluable feedback we knew we were on the right track. Um, but because, again, it wasn't as if, you know, we were on a set making a movie and we could get that, you know, immediacy. It, this was really just creating, hoping that we were all seeing the same thing. Now, how many hours of footage did you have and how long did it take you until you got that final cut? Uh, wow. We had um, e easily. Um, I, I well I, again you know just in the the interviews of the folks um, outside of Billy you know if we interviewed eighty folks we had at least eighty hours of that kind of footage um, and then we had you know countless hours of videos that Billy provided to us um, so easily oh you know over a hundred or maybe two hundred hours of footage. Which was which was a wonderful blessing. Um, 
you know, it was unfortunate that we did interview so many amazing people for the film, but unfortunately, only about 40 of them are, um, you know, utilized within the film. And that had nothing to do with the individuals or the interviews themselves. It was just because this was a documentary, the narrative of the film was emerging based upon what I was receiving for all of these interviews. Um, because I interviewed about half the folks and then Randy Goodwin, my producing partner, he interviewed the other half. And so between Randy and myself and Jeremy sifting through the various interviews for me to find that through line of the story that I saw and heard, um, you know, that that's really what it all came down to, um, you know. And so those were some tough decisions to have to make because there were some beautiful stories that were shared about Billy, but it just became access. Um, you know, we just simply couldn't make, you know, a, a five hour film. Uh, right. So, you know, but that all being said, you know, we've, we've talked about the possibility of turning some of this into a bit of a docu-series because there are, you know, like I said, over a hundred hours of, of footage that we could use. Um, so, you know, we're continuing to to look at a lot of different options um, as far as all of that goes. But, you know, it, it, it was it was we started actively producing the film, editing the film, scoring all of that kind of stuff in uh, August of 2020 is when we kind of put the pedal to the metal. Then we, you know, as Bez probably mentioned in other interviews, um, you know, we had to throw on the brakes um, in October of 2020 when 720 Walt Disney World performers were let go. Um, not only was that a base audience, it was also, you know, they were the folks who were supporting us when we were crowdfunding the film. And none of us felt right about the fact that, you know, here we are making a film about Billy Flanagan, who happened to be asked back to Disney, and yet we're asking people to help us make this film, and they're trying to figure out how they're going to pay mortgage. So we we stopped things, and um, to his incredible credit, um, my producing partner, Randy Goodwin, was able to figure out a way um, through private investment to get the film funded. Um, again, because we had started out, we were just going to do a short little, you know, 10, 15 minute little fun piece about Billy on his bike. And it expanded into an hour and a half, you know, feature documentary. Now, because you weren't there in person with Billy to interview him, did your company send him recording and lighting equipment or did he just use his own stuff? No, we actually did hire uh, a gentleman, a cinematographer out of Florida, John Von Moodis. And uh, John was able to interview Billy over two days period. And I did everything. Uh, I conducted the interview via Zoom. So I was there live, you know, in Billy's house, so to speak. They just set, set up a computer on a tripod kind of a thing. And so I was talking to Billy the whole time, um, you know, and, and interviewing him. Um, in real time. And that's the same way that at the end of the film, um, you see a little bit of Billy performing an original song, which was written specifically for the film by Billy and an amazing composer and pianist, Carol Stein, who's been 
with Disney for many, many years and most recently retired. Um, I actually but, just spoke with her about an really? hour ago. Oh, uh, she's wonderful. getting ready to go on a cruise. And when she gets back, she and I are going to get a date on the calendar. Oh, that's wonderful. Carol, Carol's fantastic. And, uh, the song she wrote for us was just beautiful. And, and so we shot a bit of a little music video that again is, is featured in the film. And that was the same sort of situation. John was filming that we had a crew, we had all that. Um, and yet I was directing the video shoot from my home in Los Angeles. So I never felt like I wasn't completely a part of it. Um, we just had to use technology the best way we could to support the fact that we all couldn't be in the same exact room together. Sure, sure. How did you get all of that great archival footage? Like, was that from Billy's personal collection? A lot of it was. A, a majority of, of the archival footage that we use uh, is is personal uh, to Billy that he has gotten. You know, he's been there for 40 years, so he has 40 years worth of him performing. And then there were other um, archival things that we were able to secure um, for the film itself. Um, but yeah, a, a majority of it came from Billy's personal files. What are you most proud of about the film? That we did it. I think. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think it was one of those things that, um, you know, and Billy has talked about it, you know, here's, here's this guy who used to be a, a Disney cast member 20 some odd years later, calling from Los Angeles, saying he wants to make a movie about Billy, you know, and I'm sure Billy kind of was like, oh, yeah, that's great. And not necessarily thinking that it would ever see the light of day. But this is what I do for a living. Uh, you, know what I mean? you know, I'm a storyteller, whether it's in front of a camera or behind the camera. And so it wasn't something that once we were in motion, that it was just going to be sort of become Cullen's folly. You know, and that, you know, people right, right. two years from now would be like, whatever happened to that, you know, movie that they interviewed me on Zoom for? It was like, no, we we had a mission. And then we were very fortunate that we found distribution almost immediately for the film. Um, and so everything, you know, came together incredibly well. So, I'm, I'm you know, I'm, there's so many specific parts of the film that I'm proud of artistically in the way in which we were able to tell parts of Billy's story. But overall, just the fact that, you know, I was able, I had an idea to tell a story and, you know, was able to surround myself with so many incredibly talented artists who all came together to help me tell that story. I mean, it certainly wasn't a singular effort. And so, you know, I'm, I'm most proud of the fact that we actually did it and that it's pretty good. You know, at least that's what people tell us. It's incredibly good. Thank you. Yeah, this is just a, a wonderful piece. So how was the world premiere? The world premiere was pretty amazing. It really was. Um, the world premiere was held in uh, Winter Garden, Florida, um, which is just adjacent, as you know, uh, to Orlando and Kissimmee, where Walt Disney World is. And, and Billy has performed in the theater before. Um, and, uh, you know, the film came out, uh, streaming on October 7th and the theatrical premiere was October 1st at the Winter Garden. Um, unfortunately I wasn't able to travel down to Florida for the event, uh, but I certainly was tapped in and I had, you know, friends who were in the audience that night, you know, 
who were texting me, um, you know, and kind of giving me a play by play of everything that was happening. And it was it was wonderful on so many levels. I think the thing that touched me the most was seeing Billy and his entire family, including his ex-wife, Karen, working and walking the red carpet together. Um, it was such a wonderful, wonderful thing to see how the film has in many ways brought them together again. Um, I think there was a new, unique opportunity in that in telling their story and putting it up on a screen, literally, it gave them a bit of a distance from some of the pain and some of the heartbreak that they had suffered as a family. And it almost became like, well, this is a version of our family up on screen. And by creating that healthy distance, I think it offered them some healing. I mean, I, I know as much in the fact that Billy has shared with Randy and I that the film really has truly in many ways helped his family heal because it's allowed them the platform to talk about things that, you know, we've never talked about in the same way that, you know, when you go to a wedding and you see a relative that you haven't seen for many, many years, you know, the common connection, the fact that you're there celebrating, you know, a new marriage or a birth or something like that, it, it allows the, the ability to connect um, without the pressure. And I think that's what the film did um, for the Flanagan family in many ways. You've worked on so many television shows and movies. Did any of your directors have a profound influence on you? There have been a number that have had a uh, profound influence. Um, you know, th there's one in particular, uh, a gentleman by the name of Tom Verica. Um, Tom is, uh, he for many, many years was a, a very recognizable actor. Um, he, uh, I think most recently as an actor, he played um, Sam Keating on How to Get Away with Murder. He was uh, Viola Davis's husband on that series. But at the same time, uh, Tom was also um, a executive producer and director, the resident director of the television series Scandal. So literally, Tom would be, you know, directing a scene on Scandal and then have to run across the studio lot, get into hair and makeup, and then shoot a scene with Viola Davis, and then run back and continuing oh, wow. directing scenes with Kerry Washington. Um, Tom and I first met on uh, an episode of Grey's Anatomy that he directed back in 2007, I believe. And we became um, pretty fast friends. And the way he tells stories has really, really influenced me in so many ways. Um, you know, I think, you know, and Tom and I have actually, and, and uh, as additionally with um, another incredible gentleman by the name of Jeff Perry, who was one of the co-founders of Steppenwolf Theater out of Chicago. Uh, the three of us, along with Randy Goodwin and 12th Angel Productions, we have come together and we're developing a narrative feature uh, called Plate River, which is about um, gun violence. And it's told through the eyes of someone who's left behind. Um, and that's been in development for some time now. But And we were kind of almost teed up to really kind of go into a pre-production and then, um, you know, a little thing called a global pandemic hit. 
Um, hmm. So we kind of put things on hold. Um, currently, Tom is one of the executive producers and directors on Bridgerton. Hmm. So uh, he actually is living over in London right now. But um, so, yeah, Tom, Tom has had a major influence in me, um, you know, being able to work side by side with him. As far as any other directors that have in- impacted me, I have never worked with uh, a gentleman by the name of Tom McCarthy. But the storytelling he does is just incredible. And Tom McCarthy is um, the writer-director behind such films as The Visitor uh, with Richard Jenkins and uh, The Station Agent with uh, Peter Dinklage um, and uh, Win Win with uh, Paul Giamonti and Bobby Cavanaugh. Mm -hmm. Um, He just is an incredible storyteller. And so, you know... I, I kind of aspire to be the Toms, you know, Tom McCarthy or Tom right, Verica. Right. You know, they just they find the heart um of every story. And um, you know, what they do is something that I aspire to continue to try to do myself. What do you think are the most important skills for a director? I would think uh it's being organized and being a good listener and being open to collaboration. Um, you know, the this is my, you know, uh, Billy Flanagan, The Happiest Man on Earth is my junior effort, as it were, you know, having directed two short films. Billy Flanagan is, of course, my feature film debut, as you mentioned in your intro. Um, but the thing that I think I most learned in the whole process of directing that first short film is the collaborative nature of filmmaking. There are so many aspects that I had honestly just taken for granted being at that point um, an actor, um, solely an actor or a writer, um, and not seeing the bigger picture. But there were so many things that we discovered in post um, when we were editing that first short film, Fading Scars, that it was it was incredible, you know, how the music could set the tone, how you know, through editing and sleight of hand, you can manipulate in a positive way performances. Uh, You can linger on a moment that wasn't necessarily there. You know, so everything, the textures of of the wardrobe, the lighting, all of it coming together was such a collaborative experience that, you know, the director in many ways is just sort of an air traffic controller, you know, making sure that the planes land and take off and no one gets hurt. Um, so I think that's probably the biggest thing is just, you know, recognizing the talent that's around you and allowing them the space to do what they do their best and staying out of their way. And then also, you know, knowing when you need to lean in and when you need to pull out. What does your creative process look like? You know, uh, as far as directing goes, mm-hmm. it, it really, it varies from project to project. Um you know, uh, with Fading Scars, um, the the two characters that are found in the film, um, and, and I appreciate we're talking about this, uh, both the, the previous films, Fading Scars and Portrait of a Woman at Dawn, are both streaming on Amazon right now. Um, so I continue to get little notes from followers and fans saying, you know, wow, this impacted me or whatever. So I'm excited by the fact that, you know, a platform like this still exists. Because had I made this film 20 years ago, you know, it would have been for friends and family um, sort of a thing. But with Fading Scars, 
the two characters in the film are based on two people that I know um, who didn't know one another, but I thought how interesting might it be to bring two people together to tell that story. Whereas with a portrait of a woman at dawn, you know, I was really watching and listening and trying to learn um, everything I could uh, to be a better human and a better man when the whole Me Too movement started to uh, to come to the to the forefront. And you know, being a middle aged man, I knew I needed to just kind of listen and and not try to mansplain anything and not try to step in and correct anything and just listen. And what I recognized was that some of the things that we collectively were trying to expose were nothing new, that, you know, women, unfortunately, have been facing these things for hundreds of years. And so, you know, I've always had an affinity for 1920s Paris, um, you know, just the time of Hemingway and things like that and the explosion of art. And so I decided to set the film during that time period. And I had individual actors that I wanted to work with, and I reached out to one actor in particular, uh, an incredible gifted actor, um, Phil Abrams. And I said to Phil, Phil, I want to write a film. I want to direct a film and I want you in it. What kind of a character have you not gotten the opportunity to play much? Let's lean into that. And so he told me, you know, what his wish list was, and it just worked out perfectly that it became part of the story that I was going to tell. So again, my, my creative process is different. Sometimes the stories come immediately to me. And sometimes like with, um, you know, Billy Flanagan, the happiest man on earth, the story emerged as we were making the film, you know, and, and the truth is, is we were into the home stretch in post-production and we were about ready to, you know, lock everything up and, and send the film off to, you know, the composer. And, you know, again, that day in October came when Disney, because of the pandemic, was forced to let go of 725 or 720 equity performers. We knew that we had to take a hard right at that point, because otherwise there would have been this huge elephant in the room within the film if we didn't address the fact that, you know, all these people had had been let go. And so that in itself, that created a new narrative for me to be able to, to explore and, and tell. Um, and, and so it was, it was something that was hard. And, and I don't think that people realize that are watching the film these days that, you know, unfortunately, a number of the people that are interviewed in the film still are not back working with Disney. Um, they've moved on. They've literally left Orlando um, or they've found employment elsewhere. So, you know, it wasn't something that was was an easy thing. It really changed people's lives and in many, many ways. And and that's why, uh, again, if you see the film, that the film is dedicated to live performers everywhere. You know, I I cut my teeth as a performer, as a live performer. Um, that's where my roots are. And so in making the film, it brought me back to a lot of that and, and the motivation to tell stories. Um, and so, you know, it, the creative process changes from, from project to project, but it's always about trying to find the heart, I think. 
there have been so many advances in technology and recording techniques. What do you think filmmaking will look like in 10 years? I can't even imagine what it's going to be in 10 years because what it's been in the last 10 years, of, you know, <laughs> since 2012, the advances that have been made are just incredible. You know, I mean, my wife and I were watching something on Hulu last night and it was, we paused the, the program and a picture of a sweatshirt came up with a QR code and we could have just held our phone up to our television and purchased that particular sweatshirt right then and there. So the technology I think is just, you know, it's, it's, it's incredible. You know, my youngest mm-hmm. son is a film major, uh, right now. And, uh, you know, the things that he is doing, you know, just for classwork is just astounding that, you know, these were not things that were available when they made ET, you know, back in the eighties. But here's my, you know, youngest son who's a junior now, and he's using technology that Steven Spielberg would have given his right arm to be able to use, you know. So storytelling has just advanced and, and filmmaking is just trying, you know, it's best to keep us, I guess, all on our toes. It's it's kind of amazing. Do you have any advice for aspiring filmmakers? I would love any inspiring filmmakers to to give me advice. You know, I'm still kind of figuring this out as I go along. Um, you know, I I call myself a filmmaker because I've been very fortunate that I've been able to tell three stories that I wrote and directed. Um, but oh my gosh, I I I have miles and miles to go to become. I feel in my own heart a, a bona fide filmmaker. Am I an actor? Sure. Am I a writer? Yes. Am I a filmmaker? Yeah, it depends on who you're asking what day of the week it is. <laughs> um, you know, again, I, I'm, filmmaking, it's always about the next one, just like it is with acting. So, you know, uh, the bar has been set and, and you know, we set it pretty high, I think, with Billy Flanagan. So I'm looking forward to what my next project is going to be. Speaking of your next project, yes. do I have a starring or supporting role? You just call <laughs> me if if you are good. Um, you know, we we can find you a place in the film. We we certainly can. Um, you know, uh, it's it's always fun when when those types of things happen. You know, and you can put little Easter eggs in uh, to films. Sure, sure. Um, I, I love that kind of thing. Well, I'm I'm very particular. Uh, it has to be in Hawaii, so you're gonna have to go back to Hawaii. Just take me with you. That sounds fine. That that's wonderful. You know, and I mean, all kidding aside, since I've been back from Hawaii, I, I'm thinking on these various projects that I'm working on, how I could legitimately set them in Hawaii. You know, <laughs> it's like, well, we'll just transpose everything and we'll put it in Hawaii. It doesn't have to be snow. It could be sand. You know. It doesn't have to be skiing. They, they they could be surfing, you know. It really is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful place. Was that the first time you were there? No, I actually was in Hawaii the first time back in August of 2019. Um, I had done a guest appearance on Hawaii Five-0. Mm. Uh, I mean, I was there for about a week uh, in Hawaii. Um, and it was lovely. 
And so it was, it was wonderful to go back um, after the, you know, lockdown and things like that um, to sort of see things. And the thing that was really interesting for me is because I had not traveled much um, since, since the pandemic. And so it was as almost as if I had been there just recently kind of a thing, because, you know, in 2019, August, it was just before, you know, lockdown, basically. And so the next right. time I found myself traveling, you know, I, I've traveled some, but not to the extent of flying to Hawaii. So it really felt like, you know, I knew exactly where the grocery store was. I knew where I could get the best pokey. You know, it was <laughs> really easy. It felt like I was just kind of going home. Nice. Do you feel more fulfilled as an actor or director? Uh, you know, I've had more experience being fulfilled as an actor. Um, so that would be my first, I guess, answer. Um, but at the same time, what I've experienced with, uh, making Billy Flanagan has been incredibly, um, fulfilling in so many different ways, so many different ways, you know, um, you know, when you're performing in front of a live audience, there is an immediacy. When you're performing in front of a camera, there isn't that intimacy. You, you do necessarily, you know, you get the great, you know, thumbs up from a director or a crew member might pull you aside and say, you know, that was really wonderful work and things like that. But it may be weeks or months, depending on the project, before, you know, audiences get to take part of it. Um, you know, and, and being a director of a film and, and writing it, you know, the, the time in which I'm sitting alone writing a scene for a narrative, and then when it's actually being seen by audiences, you know, is sometimes, you know, two years later in the making. And that's incredibly fulfilling to be able to to see that, you know, and, and with Billy Flanagan, The Happiest Man on Earth, it it was truly artistically fulfilling. You know, that part of my artistic soul was definitely fed in making this film because, again, there were only a few handful of times during the immediate lockdown that I was given the opportunity to work in front of a camera. So I was able to excise those muscles, so to speak, um, by, by telling Billy's story. Now, when you and I were talking, you mentioned that you went to school at AMDA in New York, and then you got a full-ride acting scholarship to attend Florida School of the Arts. Once you graduated, did you stay in Florida, or did you move to New York or L.A.? Once I left Flow Arts, um, I started doing various bus and truck tours, and everything from big, you know, big buses and, and you know, semi-trucks to me in a, you know, cargo van and two or three other actors and performing in cafetoriums in, you know, cities all right, across right. the United States. Um, so no, when I, when I left Florida school of the arts, um, I spent a good number of years literally just touring the country. Um, you know, having come back and, and recently performed in Hawaii uh, again, you know, having been there in August of 2019, I'm so incredibly fortunate that I have performed in 49 of the 50 states. Um, mm. I, Alaska is the only one left on my bucket list. 
but I have been fortunate to either been on a stage or on a sound stage in every other state in, in our country. So here's my thinking. When you and I do the movie in Hawaii, we do a flashback scene about Alaska. We film on location in Alaska. You have all 50 states. You're welcome. Well, thank you for that, Scott. I think that <laughs> that makes the most sense. You know, we should just we'll work it into the budget. Absolutely. Absolutely. So your first professional acting job was a bus and truck tour. What what was the show? Um, wow. So uh, it wasn't necessarily, that wasn't my first. I had worked professionally before that. Um, I had done an outdoor drama uh, called Cross and Sword, um, which was the state play in Florida. And it was about the founding of St. Augustine. Uh, with Pedro Menendez de Avales. Um, and that play ran for many, many summers um, in St. Augustine, Florida. And, and I was involved with that for, for two years, two sort of summer stock. And then I went on and did some other summer stock. And then eventually, um, I guess in the fall of 1989, um, I began touring the country with various shows, one of them in particular, which is the closest to my heart uh, was a show called Welcome Home, which was written by um, an incredible playwright um, who wrote plays for young audiences. But she, you know, is a playwright. The fact that she's focused the plays on young audiences was sort of a side note. But uh, this particular play was called Welcome Home. And um, it examined a young father coming back and acclimating to life after the Vietnam War. And um, so we toured the country with that play. And that was just at the same time that um, the Vietnam War Memorial had come about. And um, there were a couple of times where we were in various cities when the traveling wall was in, in the city as well. And, and that was incredibly profound and fulfilling as an actor and really kind of set the tone for the kind of projects I wanted to be involved with because, you know, my, my connection to the Vietnam War was that, you know, my father was drafted, um, but he didn't go and serve in Vietnam. He actually served in Korea um, during that time um, in the late 60s. Um, but, you know, in, in doing that play and meeting audience members afterwards and getting huge bear hugs from veterans who thanked us um, for telling the story that uh, Catherine Schultz Miller had crafted for us. You know, it was just amazing because again, kind of talking about Billy Flanagan, uh, you know, you could see the healing that was, was happening. Um, so right. that show in particular, you know, and we did some other fun shows. I, I played Ichabod Crane, for a lot of years, um, you know, and I've done, I think, every version of A Christmas Carol that's ever been written. Um, so, um, you know, I, I, I've paid the dues, so to speak, um, in, in that respect. Can you share some highlight acting moments? I, I've got to say that, uh, you know, as far as live performing goes, um, some of the most incredible moments that I have shared on a stage was when I had the opportunity to be a cast member at Walt Disney World. 
that's all the time we have for today, but Cullen will be back next week where we talk about the Disney parks, including some super classic attractions. We also have a great time playing the Mouse and Me games. As always, please subscribe to the show, rate it, and leave a review if you liked it, and tell your enemies if you didn't like it. Follow me on the socials by searching The Mouse and Me and visit patreon.com slash the mouse and me to support the show. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you have the best day ever and see you real soon.